Good morning and Happy New Year, everyone. Again, for those of you that just arrived, I'm Pastor Mike, and we're glad to have you here at Image Church. As the first Sunday of the year, and I do this every year, um, we do a one-off message which explains our ministry theme for the year. Um, do you have to do a ministry theme? No. Am I doing it just because someone else down the road is doing it? Yes and no. But really, I think life is made up of seasons. And seasons change. And there's many things that God tells us to do, and there's many things we know we ought to be doing, but life changes. And at certain seasons, we're focusing on certain things, and other things we simply are not able to focus on as much as perhaps we would like to or have in the past. So simply recognizing that life changes, that that's true not only for us as individuals, but even for us as a body of believers, so every year after Christmas, I, I spend just a week just trying to pray and, and seek the Lord and receive from him just kind of a, a, some vision and direction for the year. And this year, I, I just kept getting the images in my mind of a race. And just over and over, and then the language of Paul, in particular 1 Corinthians and Philippians, the language of a runner who disciplines themselves in order to cross the finish line. And that just kept replaying over and over in my head. And I know it's certainly a ministry theme for my own personal life, but I want to share it with you as a ministry theme for this year that we'll try to reinforce throughout the year through um, our various gatherings and retreats. But the theme this year is going to be running to win. Running to win. And I want to share this theme, running to win, from the very words of the Apostle Paul himself. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 9, 23 through 27. This morning I'm going to read from the Common English Bible, that's C-E-B. I looked through all the modern translations, and the reason I chose this one for this morning is it did the best job in bringing out the athletic imagery of the original Greek. So I went through the Greek, went through the translations of the Greek, and the CEB really brought to the forefront these athletic images, and so I want to share that with you. We'll have that up on the screen behind me. You can follow along with me now as I read God's Word. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. All the things I do are for the sake of the gospel, so I can be a partner with it. Don't you know that all the runners in the stadium run, but only one gets the prize? So run to win. Everyone who competes practices self-discipline in everything. The runners do this to get a crown of leaves that shrivel up and die. But we do it to receive a crown that never dies. So now this is how I run. Not without a clear goal in sight. I fight like a boxer in the ring. Not like someone who is shadow boxing. Rather, I'm landing punches on my own body and subduing it like a slave. I do this to be sure that I myself won't be disqualified after preaching to others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I know that life can be difficult, whether it's difficult or pleasant, it is full of change. Not only are our personal lives changing, but the world is changing. As we've been reminded recently about the events over in Iran and what that might mean for the rest of the world going forward. I thank you that we are on sure and certain ground when we tread upon your holy word. And I just pray that your spirit would breathe these words into our hearts, that we would be living men and women, spiritual beings who know and do the will of God. And so I just pray for a blessing over this message. I pray for a blessing 
over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, that it would be acceptable in your sight, O God, my strength and my Redeemer. Play for this blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this theme, running to win. So apparently, if you're from outside the United States and you're not too familiar with United States culture, um, the U.S. government has set up various embassy websites. So depending on where you are, you can look it up. I happen to pick the one from Germany. So if you're coming over from Germany and you want to understand the United States, there's all this information that explains to you United States culture. One of the things on the United States Embassy website is an explanation of the role of sports in American culture. And this is what it says in the opening paragraph. Sports play an important role in American society. They enjoy tremendous popularity, but more important, they are vehicles for transmitting such values as justice, fair play, and teamwork. Sports have contributed to racial and social integration and over history have been a social glue bonding the country together. So sports are not merely entertainment, but they actually reinforce values and many scholars have pointed out they actually reinforce cultural identity. It turns out that not only are sports important in American culture, they were very important in the culture of Paul's time. Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth. If you don't know anything about Corinth, it was a sports city. I don't know how many of you have ever lived in a sports city. A city that is built literally around sports. Now, I played sports growing up. Sports was important. I wouldn't say it was everything. But several years back, my family and I, we moved to Austin, Texas. Has anyone been to Austin, Texas? Okay, great food. But we actually lived downtown. And literally, the population would increase or decrease by about 50% downtown, depending on whether or not school was in session. The University of Texas is one of the largest public universities in the country at over 50,000 students. And so you can imagine 50,000 students living in a downtown area, and then when the school year ends, they're all gone. So I would literally drive down Guadalupe, which they call the drag, and I'd be just driving down, and when school is in session, I would be stopping every five feet for students crossing the road. And it would literally take me 20 to 30 minutes to go a mile. But when school would end, I could get down that same amount of time in about 30 seconds. And one of the big things there is the giant Stephen F. Austin Stadium, where the Texas Longhorns college football team play their games. And whenever there was a game, the entire town, it wasn't like, do you like the Rams or do you like the Chargers? It's hook'em horns, like everybody is rooting for the Longhorns. Everything is built around sports. Much could be said for the city of Corinth. What took place in Corinth every two years was what we know as the Isthmian Games which were the second most popular games in the ancient world only after the Olympics at Athens. And so these games would take place every two years in Corinth. And hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world would travel to Corinth in order to watch these games. Interestingly, Scripture tells us that in addition to being an apostle and preacher of the Word of God and missionary and a church planter, the Apostle Paul also worked with leather. Many say he was specifically a tent maker. And as you might know, that tent making was big business whenever the games would come to town. When a city would increase in population by 500 to 1,000 percent in a matter of weeks, there has to be temporary dwellings for all of these people. 
And so Paul, who partly made a living from building tents, was in an ideal place in Corinth to earn a living and at the same time share the Gospel with all the world coming to him. So when we encounter the language of 1 Corinthians 9 and we see that Paul is using athletic imagery, it's no strange thing at all. This was the language of the culture. These were not just the things that people did for entertainment, but as I said, sports reinforce values. And so Paul is drawing off of the language of everyday life, the language of sport, and he's transforming it and applying it to the Christian life. Because, of course, spirituality is ambiguous for many people. What does it mean to be spiritual? Some people say they're spiritual but not religious. What does that mean? How do I know if I'm living the Christian life or not? What is involved with this? So Paul does what any wise teacher would do. And that is begin with common life experience that everyone knows and understands. And takes that common life experience that everybody knows and uses it to explain that which, which everyone might not know. And so we have the language of sport and the language of the games and he's applying it to the Christian life. And so what I want to do is walk through this passage, these five verses with you, and share from these words of Paul how we too might run to win in 2020. Let's look at verses 23 to begin with. Paul says, All the things I do are for the sake of the gospel, so I can be a partner with it. That's a radical statement. Can you say this morning that everything I do is for the sake of the Gospel? I think for many of us, the truth is, even if we're Christians and we have been so for a long time, we cannot honestly say that. What you can probably say is, I do X, Y, and Z for the sake of the Gospel. I genuinely do. I do this and this and this. But if we're running a race and we haven't crossed the finish line yet, that means there's still areas of our lives that have not been redeemed and redirected and brought into service of the Gospel. And for Paul, that is what life is all about. For Paul, the goal of the Christian life is to direct everything into the advancement of Jesus and His kingdom. That's what life is about. And this is a big biblical theological idea. If you go back to the very beginning of human history, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, if you go back to Genesis, we see that human beings in the beginning, when all was right with the world, when there was no sickness, when there was no death, when there was no racism or sexism or cancer or anything else, when everything was right, we see that human beings were made in the image of God. And theologians have wrestled over that for centuries. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Does that mean being sapient, that we're sapient beings? Does it mean the ability to make choices? Uh, is it that we're, we're a, a rational soul, but, but also a spirit? What does it mean? One of the key things I think we can know that it means is it means to be partners with God in creation. When God makes the world in Genesis, He doesn't finish it. It's not over. God makes the world, it gets as far as He wants to take it on His own, day six. And He turns it over to human beings. And He says, till the ground. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. God does His work and He turns it over. To be in the image of God means to be a partner with God. That's what that means. It is to be a partner with God. To do the work of God on behalf of God and that's the reason you're alive. 
So when Paul says here, I do all things, everything I do is for the sake of the gospel so I can be a partner in it. What Paul is seeing is the opportunity for the curse of sin to be reversed and for the purpose of man to finally be realized. Which means that anything less than that is futile. That we're not living out our purpose if we're marking off areas of our lives that Jesus is just not allowed to have. But we do this because we perceive we'll be losing something if we give it to Jesus. If I bring Jesus into it, if I consciously go, I'm going to direct this toward God in the advancement of the name of Jesus to lift His name up so that He will be glorified and He will be worshipped. And others will know that it is He whom I worship and serve and Him alone. That if I actually do that, I'm going to lose out. That I'll lose my life. That I won't have this, that, and the other. But for Paul... Giving up everything for Christ is how everything is gained. In paganism, the goal of worship was to take one small area of one's life and to sacrifice it to the gods in order that the worshiper's will might be done. So if if you study ancient world religion, And you study idolatry. You study the Greco-Roman world. Nobody loved the gods. You you don't really get that language. Oh, how I love you and I just live for you. Aphrodite or, you know, uh, Hermes or whoever. You don't get that language. The gods are pretty capricious. But you got to deal with them. It's kind of like politics, right? They're capricious, but i got to deal with them. They affect my life. And so they would take a sacrifice, and it was usually the least and the worst, You would never give up your firstborn. You would never give up the unblemished lamb. You'd give the lamb with three legs, the spotted lamb. That's what you do. You give the God your least. And when you give the God, you're not doing it out of love. You're doing it hoping to have control over the God. Christianity is exactly the opposite. In Christianity, the goal is to sacrifice all of one's life so that the Lord's will is done. It's not giving up little pieces to control God. That's paganism. It's giving up all of your life so that God's will is done in yours. I feel that it's very easy for professing Christians and churchgoers under the guise of being Christian are really engaging in what is ultimately pagan spirituality. That's the idea that I'm only going to do a little bit for God. He can't have my whole life. God, if I go to church regularly this year, God, if I start giving financially, God, if I share Jesus at work like once a month, I expect you to make sure I'm healthy this year. I expect you to bring back my estranged son or daughter. I expect you to prosper me financially. I expect you to do that. I'll give you a little bit, and then you can do what I want you to do. Christianity is about giving up all that we have to see God's will done, because we believe that is what is most valuable. So when I read these words of Paul, all the things I do, listen to him. Listen to his heart. Listen, everything I do is for the sake of the gospel. Every area of my life, when I wake up, when I plan where I'm going to go, where I'm going to go to school, what kind of degree I'm going to get, what job I'm going to get, who am I going to marry, where am I going to start a business, when am I going to get out of business, when I'm going to move here, move there, when I'm going to buy my house, sell my house, Paul would say, I do all of that in order to advance the gospel. How many of us think that way? It's like, well, if I can just make money on my house, I'm selling it, and if I can't, then I'm not. It's that simple. For Paul, it's about the advancement of the gospel. Running the race to win means you know what's at stake. What the race is for, it is ultimately all about Jesus. Look at verses 24 and 25. 
don't you know that all the runners in the stadium run, but only one gets the prize? So run to win. Everyone who competes practices self-discipline in everything. The runners do this to get a crown of leaves that shrivel up and die. But we do it to receive a crown that never dies. Our level of commitment and sacrifice is determined by our belief in the reward. Our level of commitment and sacrifice is determined by our belief in the reward. Now, many times we can do this to ourselves or to others. We just try to get people to increase their levels of commitment. Hey, you've only been committing A, I want you to commit, you know, A plus B. But there's another way to do that. And it's to elevate and remind everyone what the reward is. Why are you doing that? Think about it. The kinds of things that athletes endure, and I was, I was looking through various sports to see what athletes do, and, and of course many of these things are seasonal, but if you look at athletes in general, they have to give up a lot in order to be the best at what they do. Many of them have reported how they can't do simple things like going out to eat. Things that much of Christian fellowship centers around is going out for food. Hey, let's meet up for coffee. Hey, let's go grab a bite to eat. And an athlete who's competing would have to say, I can't eat out. I have to stay home. Or if I eat out with you while you order off the menu, I'm pulling out my little Ziploc bag with my three chicken breasts that I cooked yesterday and just sitting there and eating that. They discipline every single thing they eat. They program out every day so that every three hours they're eating or they're, they're working out or they're on the field or they're in the cage or they're in the gym or whatever it is. And they're doing this regardless of what their family is doing, regardless of what their friends are doing. Some are waking up, setting their alarms for three in the morning to wake up to drink protein to make sure their body is healing. Others go through grueling workout sessions in which vomiting and fainting are common. Now you look at each and every one of those things and you think to yourself, doing that just to do it is crazy. Like, who wants to do that for no reason? It would. It would be insane. And some of us might even say, even if it's to be a professional athlete and make millions, I still wouldn't give up going out to eat. But you can at least understand for, for a professional athlete that they see the goal. They see the reward. It is being the best at what I do. And I feel I was made for this. And I was called for this. And anything less than this for me would be a failure to be who I am. Paul sees the Christian life in the same way. Paul sees the Christian life as a competition of sorts. Analogously, we might say, well, what is the stadium? The stadium is life. Think about that. For an athlete, the sport is just a certain place at a certain time. For the Christian life, in the Christian analogy, the stadium is all of life. The stadium is not Sunday morning. You come in, be a nice, good little Christian boy, good Christian girl, and then you're off. It's off-season on Monday morning, and you're cussing at everybody at the office or on the, on the 405 to work. You're like, rah, raging, throwing stuff out. You're on the news. The police are chasing you. Hey, they go to my church. That's amazing. It's not good, but it's amazing. The stadium is all of life. Think about how hard this is. In pretty much all the sports that I could find, everyone has some kind of off-season. Some shorter than others, but there's always a little bit of time in which they can rest. They can almost be a normal person. Think about how exhausting and grueling the Christian life is. The stadium is all of life. There is not one moment of one day in which you are not competing. This is not an easy thing to do. It is a hard thing to do. Christianity has not been tried and been found wanting. It has simply not been tried. 
Because when people actually look at the cost, like the rich young ruler, when they hear what the cost is, they go away disappointed. For they recognize and perceive in the call of Jesus Christ, they must give away everything. That is true for everyone. Jesus knew what had the heart of that young man. For that young man, it was money. For you, it might not be money. It might be something else. Maybe you're, what I would say, is a wise person. And there is no one single thing you've put all of your heart into. Maybe you've wisely dispersed it. So if one thing goes wrong, if my marriage goes wrong, if my kids go wrong, if my job goes wrong, I didn't put all my identity in that. But even then, Jesus calls you to make him number one above everything else. And every day of the rest of your life is a competition in which you are called to discipline yourself in order to receive the reward. Look at verse 26. So now this is how I run, not without a clear goal in sight. I fight like a boxer in the ring, not like someone who is shadow boxing. So here Paul is starting to blend metaphors. He started off with the marathon. He started off with running a race. But halfway through this sentence, he changes or adds another metaphor, and that is of a boxer in the ring. And the, the Greek can go one of two ways. I think probably it's both. But the last line says, I fight like a boxer in the ring, not like someone who is shadow boxing. The actual language in Greek is literally not as one beating the air. And that can be two ways, and, and the CEB took it one of those ways. It can be shadow boxing. When he's talking about beating the air, he's saying, I'm not just doing it to do it. A lot of American churchgoers and professing Christians are shadow boxing. They're just doing it to do it. It's the idea of what James warned about, those who read the Bible, and they can quote it to you all day long, and yet they do none of it. Shadow boxing. You're taking up the skills of the sport, but you're not really doing it. The other way of looking at it is Paul could actually be talking about it is in a fight. It's actually in the ring. It's competition time but you're not hitting anything when you punch. It's not very, I mean, boxing's pretty basic, right? Hit, don't get hit. It's more complicated than that, but that's basically it. Hit, don't get hit. Well, Paul's saying, if you're in it, but you're not hitting anything, you're not accurate, then what is that? What if you don't know what you're aiming at? Either way, for the Christian, we don't want to be doing either of these things. Look, if we're going to go to church, if we're going to read the Bible, it should be because we want to do it. We want this to be everything to us. When Jesus tells us to love and forgive our enemies, we're actually supposed to do that. And that's very, very hard to do. I can make myself feel a whole lot better by just teaching that to people. Just get up and say, hey everyone, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. If someone's suing you, give them, give them your cloak too. It's one thing to say that. It's another to do that. We want to be people who actually do the Word of God. You're not a faithful Christian just because you know what the Bible says. You are a faithful Christian if you do what God says. And so Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians, and through the Holy Spirit, us today, that we are not simply doing this to do it. When I say running the race to win, again, it's earlier, like Paul says, don't you know that everyone who's running in a race runs? Like everyone's running. Don't think that just because there's activity in your life, perhaps frenetic activity, that just because there's activity in your life that you're doing what God wants you to do. 
You need to be running the race to win. That I'm not, and this race is not against other people. It's against yourself. One of the mistakes Christians make, and I, I think it's probably impossible not to make it, but I think we can get better. One of the things that Christians do is they look at other people as their thermometer. And if I read the Bible more than you, and I give more than you, and I serve more than you, then, then I'm, I'm winning. I'm running my race. I'm winning. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't look at me and say, hey, Mike, are you doing better than her? Are you doing better than him? But the Lord looks at me and says, Mike, you're not doing as much as you did yesterday. Mike, you're not loving me as much as you did when you first believed. You know, that's, that's one of the... That's why it's great, if you can, to have a church that has brand new baby Christians and people who have known Jesus for 70 years. Because you need each other. Young believers typically have passion. You have passion. You are willing to sell, literally, sell everything go. Willing to do it. And then a seasoned believer comes and, and shares with you, well, you know, God wants to get at your heart. He's not literally saying, you know, be a fool and get rid of all your stuff and, and whatever. So the older, wiser believers knows the Bible more and they can help bring wisdom to that passion. But older believers need the younger. Because we can, all, we can get too wise in our own eyes. Oh, everything is cautious. There's no passion. Oh, don't go getting crazy for Jesus now. Don't go really telling everybody about Jesus. Oh, you don't need to do that. That's rocking the boat. Don't do that. Don't sell everything you have. Don't do this. Don't take that leap of faith. Don't take that risk. Don't do that. But what the Lord is going to do is He's going to look at you and He's going to say, has your love for me grown or has it decreased? Your love. And I'm not just going to ask you, did your knowledge grow? Knowledge is good. But knowledge without love puffs up, makes you arrogant. So what God wants to know is to your knowledge, have you added that love? And I think so many times in life we can go through seasons where we, we see this waxing and waning. You can get to the place where you just don't want to know God anymore. Maybe you feel like you know it all. I don't need to hear another Bible study. I don't, I don't need to read the Bible again. I just don't need to do that. For others, it's, you know, I just, I don't need to be passionate. And I, I don't need to take risks for the Lord. I, I just don't need to do that. But the Lord is looking at you and He knows who you are. And He knows where you've come from. And so He would say to us, as He said to the church at Ephesus, remember your first love. Remember that. That's one of the things I've been challenged with is remember your first love. Remember how you were when you first came to Jesus and you just couldn't get enough of him. It wasn't like people talking you into going to church. You were going to every single thing they offered. Do you remember that? People couldn't keep you away. You were going to find a way. and You weren't waiting around for people to invite you or people to chase you out to the parking lot and greet you. You were like, I am going to get near Jesus and touch the hem of his rope, and I don't care if I have to tear a roof off to get there. That's the passion you had. And it waned over time. doesn't make you a horrible person. You may have done other good things in your life and grown in the knowledge of the Word, which is good, but we want to make sure we're competing against ourselves. If we've languished in our love, we need to grow in love again this year. And by love, I, I do mean passion. Yes, love is primarily, I think, an action and obedience, but we are emotional, passionate beings. We're passionate about something. One of the things that when you look at sports, not just as a fan, because maybe you don't like sports, but if you were a sociologist and you just look at sport, you'll see that sport for many people is like a religion. My brother lives over in London in the UK and he's uh, gotten big into football because basically if you don't get big into football in London, you just, you can't fit in. It's literally their religion. 
More people go, yeah, it's called soccer here, but it's football there. We call it American football here. But it's literally like a religion that everyone, they save up all their money to get the tickets and they go and they're pouring their hearts out, cheering for the next goal. And then when they're not there, they're at the fish and chip shop, the guy's selling the fish and chips and they're talking about what their athletes just did. It becomes everything to them. They're passionate. Because deep in our hearts, we are worshipers. And if we're not worshiping God out of the depths of our heart, we shouldn't say to ourselves, oh, well, I'm just not worshiping. We need to ask ourselves, who or what am I worshiping? Because you are worshiping someone or something. You are fundamentally a worshiper. So we must make sure that we are aiming at the one we are meant to worship. Lastly, verse 27. Paul says, Rather, I'm landing punches on my own body and subduing it like a slave. I do this to be sure that I myself won't be disqualified after preaching to others. There's actually a lot of confusion about this verse for numerous reasons. Um, the first is some people have said this sounds like an extreme form of asceticism in which the Apostle Paul is against the body. He says, I'm landing punches on my own body. He's like, is, is the body bad? Are you not supposed to enjoy life, have a nice meal? You know, just are you not? Is that what Paul is saying? And I think that would certainly be a mistake. Elsewhere in this very same letter, Paul has reaffirmed that our bodies are made by God and that our bodies are good, and that they are meant to be used for the glory of the Lord. He is not against the body at all. He's using the language of the athlete. Now, we wouldn't say that an athlete who diets or goes through extreme training regimens hates their body, even though they're just maybe punishing themselves, we might say, metaphorically, in the gym or on the field but it's actually because they care about their bodies. They care about their bodies performing a certain function. And therefore, this language of landing these punches, physically disciplining oneself, I don't think we should take it literally, but it's the idea of having total control over your body like an athlete does. And that means you don't just listen to your body and do whatever it wants to do. Oh, well, I don't feel like going to this. I don't feel like doing this. I do feel like doing this. Paul is saying, just like an athlete has an ideal greater than their appetites, so Christians have an ideal greater than their appetites. And if you are going to finish your race, you have to exercise discipline over our own bodies. I don't want to get too far into it. I know for some people it can be sensitive and controversial, but I, I think it's worth commenting on a little bit. You know, growing up, a lot of spirituality was directed at our souls, you know, how to increase your soul and have a strong, healthy soul, and not so much the body. Like the body's just kind of whenever, it's your soul, your body, you're going to die anyway, so forget about that. It's just about your soul. Well, having a dad who was sick most of my life and had cancer and at the end he was so anemic he couldn't even read his Bible anymore. So you think about Bible reading, that's a spiritual discipline, but you do that in your body, don't you? There is no spiritual practice you've ever done out of your body. Every spiritual, soulful act is an embodied act. Your body is involved. And I remember I was in my last semester of Bible college in Hawaii, and I would call my dad every morning, and I would read him the Bible. Because he could no longer read it for himself. I saw my grandparents, who were some of the most wonderful people in the world, made friends wherever they went. Grandpa was a, a World War II vet. Wonderful people. And I saw them eat horribly, and get zero exercise, and I watch them literally fall apart physically. Our bodies actually matter. Our health matters. And I know there's a lot that we can't control. I can't control my genetics. I didn't pick them. 
There's certain things in life you can't predict, you don't know, but the irony is there's many things even about our physical health that we can prevent if we were to do so. According to the National Academy of Sports Medicine, seven out of ten of the top leading fatal diseases are preventable. If people would control their bodies. But it's so easy to give in to our desires. This is why fasting has always been a a Christian discipline. It's not because we're against food. Jesus certainly wasn't. Much fellowship happened around food. He was even accused of eating too much. He probably walked a lot too. And he worked hard with his hands. But it's nothing against food. But it's this idea that we practice as Christians regularly saying no to bodily appetites that are not wrong per se, in order to achieve something that we hold in theory to be greater. And the idea of fasting is denying our body's food in order to say that what I ultimately need even more than that is God's word for my soul. And your body is actually a part of that. And so taking care of ourselves, looking at our lives, being careful about your work schedule, being careful about your sleep patterns, I mean, I've seen so many people get very sick and have all kinds of issues because, and they kept reading their Bibles and praying, but then just trashing their bodies. And I don't want to see that for anyone because I know that every spiritual act we do is also in our bodies. So asking ourselves, how can I take care of the body God gave me Not because I'm a Greek athlete who's obsessed with the human form, but because like Paul, everything in my life is for the sake of the gospel. If I can have more time to preach the word, if I can have more people to influence, if I can be more awake, more alert, more able, more available to get God's word out, if I discipline my body in this way, then that is what Paul would tell us to do taking care of our bodies so that it can be used for God's glory. And lastly, the second controversial part is when Paul says, I do this to be sure that I myself won't be disqualified after preaching to others. There's two big mistakes made, and they're they're opposite mistakes. The one mistake is to say that Paul here is teaching that you can lose your salvation. I think that's a mistake. I can understand why if you only read that verse, you would think that. But if you read Paul elsewhere, because again, this would sound like a doctrine of works. You're saved only if you do a bunch of things and and win your race. But Paul taught in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved, not of works. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. So we have to hold these things in tension and say, what is the Bible teaching? So I don't think it's teaching you can lose your salvation. But there's another extreme. And the other extreme is just to sweep this warning away like it's not even there. Paul is issuing a warning. And regardless of what particular theology you think might underlie his words, I think we should hear what they're meant to do the warning that there's disqualification is to sort of shock and remind people who think, hey, I'm saved. I don't need to do anything. I raised my hand at junior high altar call, and now I can live any old way I want to, and it doesn't matter. I don't have to grow. I don't have to be sanctified. I don't have to say no to sin. I don't have to say yes to righteousness. I don't need to do anything the pastor just taught from the Word of God because I'm saved already. I think that this is a loving warning from Paul that we're meant to hear. If anyone's getting comfortable or complacent, like the race is in the bag, when you haven't crossed the finish line yet, then all I want to say this morning is keep going. For some of you, running to win simply means keep going. 
I don't think I have to be a prophet to say sometime this year some of you are going to feel like quitting. Just saying, I'm done. Maybe it's not, oh, I hate God, and what is all this, why was I doing Maybe it's just, I love you, but I'm done. I've actually had married people tell me that. It kind of, I, I don't know, I think we can compartmentalize things, but somebody's like, hey, I'm, I'm divorcing you. I love you, though, but I'm just done. And you're like, it doesn't feel like love. That doesn't feel like love. I love you, but I'm done. People can simply get to a place where they believe going on is not worth it anymore. And I've seen many Christians throughout the years, including church leaders, get to a point where they think they can quit. Where they say, there is no disqualification, so it doesn't matter whether I keep going or not. But I receive this as a friendly, loving warning. Don't be disqualified, Mike. Don't be disqualified, Eddie or Jim or Laura or anyone else. Don't be disqualified. What are the things in your life that could disqualify you? What are the things in your life? And I know a lot of times in church we, just, we talk about what's right and what's wrong, but there's more than that in the Bible. There's better and best. There's something called wisdom. And Paul uses this, well, I think it's Paul, the author of Hebrews, and Paul talks about let us lay aside every weight that holds us back. It doesn't have to be a sin in order for God to be calling you to give it up. Anything that holds you back, that weights your ankles down, anything that's slowing you down, I couldn't say from the Bible this is wrong, but for you, it weights you down and holds you back. Whatever that is, let go of that this year. For some of you, maybe you don't know what it's like to run without that. Literally, maybe you thought that anklet, that weight that was Velcroed, you thought it was a part of your leg because it's been there so long and you don't even know what a life looks like without that weight. For many people, it's bitterness. Bitterness has become a root that springs up and it's as much a part of the garden of your heart as all the roses that are there. And you just can't imagine looking at that garden without that root of bitterness. It's time to pull it out. It's time to take that weight off. For others, it may be lust. Lust doesn't just have to be about sexual desire. It can be about anything other than God that you say to yourself, if I have this, then I'll be happy. And it's not God. If I have this relationship with this person, then I'll be happy. If I can get out of this relationship with this person, then I'll be happy. If I have this amount of money, if I don't have this relational problem, then I'll be happy. Lust can simply be looking to anything as Savior that is not. If there's anything you're living your life for this year, you've included Jesus, you've given Him parts of your life, hoping He'll give something back to you, but this year He's saying, I want your whole heart. I want you to lay aside everything. I want you to make me the desire of your heart. I want you to give up everything to me, not so you can get anything back, but so that my will will be done in your life because that is the reason you exist. And so it's my prayer that we will run to win this year. And I want to close with these words from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you have a call on your life. The trajectory is upward. It is heavenward. And it is my prayer that you will let go every weight. If you're not running, that you will run. And that you will finish this leg of your journey this year well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and I hope in a spirit of repentance. I know I can't have this conversation without repentance, Lord. I just, I feel who among us can say that we've run perfectly? That we don't have any weights? That we've always been running? That we've always had the right goal? Lord, I just, I ask for your forgiveness this morning. If life at some point became about something else, we were, we were running the race and then we, we wandered off. We strayed from the path. We accumulated things in our lives that slow us down to the point of we're barely crawling. So I just pray you would forgive us. And Lord, I just pray we would look to Jesus this morning, who is the author and finisher, finisher of our faith. I do thank you that it is Jesus who has run the race of life before us. That Jesus never lost sight of the goal, not one day of his life. That Jesus never once picked up a weight that hindered or ensnared him. That Jesus never once slowed down or slacked, but forever pursued the goal that was sent before him. And he finished his race. And he did it not for himself, but for God's glory, the glory of the Father, and for our benefit. So Lord, I thank you that we can come to you as the one who runs before us. Whatever this year holds, and we don't know, there's so many question marks. Not only over our individual lives, but even over world events. But this we know. You have run before us. That all we're being calling to do is not blaze a new trail, but follow the one you have blazed for us. So this morning, I pray for courage. I pray for hope. I pray for a conviction. And I pray for power to let go of any of those things that hinder us. I just pray that you would now bless this time of response. I pray that the Holy Spirit, the great surgeon, would operate on us so that we would be the athletes you've called us to be in the arena of life. Do this work now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.